Hello and welcome to the Region Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear everything about regenerative agriculture. Region Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We offer global capability with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out how we can help you with your regenerative journey, please go to regenagri.org. I'm your host, Rose Riley, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments in the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. In our 30th episode, we'll be discussing coaching supply chains in transitioning to regenerative agriculture. To share insights into this topic, I'm joined by Matthew Ryan, Regeneration Lead at Nestlé UK and Ireland, and Patrick Barker, partner at EJ Barker and Sons at Lodge Farm in Suffolk in the east of England. I'm so interested to hear about Nestle's sustainability goals and regenerative projects and how by working closely with suppliers and directly with farmers, including the Barkers at Lodge Farm, offering a flexible, holistic and inclusive framework helps create a fairer marketplace while striving to restore the farmed landscape. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining me on the Region Agri podcast. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Matthew, if we could start with you, can you tell us about some of Nestle's sustainability goals and the ways in which its business and partner organisations are steering towards becoming more sustainable and instilling regenerative principles throughout your supply chain? Yeah, I certainly can. And and I think before I go into the details around our programmes, I think it's just worth giving a bit of context as to the size of Nestle and the scale of our operations around the world. So it won't come as any surprise that that Nestle is a a huge organisation with the world's largest food and beverage company. Within the business, there's 350 factories dotted around the globe, and we're selling our products in around 188 countries globally. I think it's almost a billion Nestle products are sold every day. So this is a huge business. Uh, And with that, if you consider that we've made these targets around regenerative agriculture, we've committed to sourcing 20% of our key agricultural materials through regenerative processes by 2025 and 50% by 2030. That gives you an idea of the scale of the impact that we need to have and and how quickly we need to move to hit these targets in the short term. We're looking at a whole range of different ways of doing this across our supply chains. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach here because we're the world's largest buyer of dairy products. We're sourcing a lot of milk here in the UK for our confectionery and coffee businesses. But equally, we have 200,000 smallholder farms that are supplying us in South Asia as well. So We've had to take a fairly open approach to how we're going to deliver these targets, but making sure that the farmer is at the centre of this is absolutely critical, whether that be in dairy, in cocoa, in coffee, or in cereals as well. So we can't meet these targets ourselves, and we certainly are reliant on the support from our suppliers, but equally from other food businesses in the industry. And We need to try and find ways to collaborate to, to work together to meet these targets. Fantastic. Thank you. And what is the Landscape Enterprise Network? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So this is a project that has been developed by a sustainability consultancy called Tree Keel, who are based in the UK and in Oxfordshire, in partnership with Nestle. And one of the reasons for developing this project is because there's a realisation that in landscapes where agricultural products are produced, There's not just one business that is reliant or dependent upon those landscapes. And equally, in those areas, it's not just agriculture that has a dependency on those landscapes. So Lens or Landscape Enterprise Networks was really developed to try and get businesses from across different sectors to work together to improve the performance of those landscapes. So, for example, in the east of England, which is where the the biggest landscape enterprise network currently is, there's a consortium of businesses that are pooling their funds and resources to 
improve the quality of those landscapes. So we've got two Nestle businesses that are engaging. So this is the Purina pet care business, and it's the cereal partners business, which is producing breakfast cereals. Those two businesses are actually pooling their funds with water companies. So Anglian Water and Affinity Water, as well as Cargill, and also a local authority that's interested in natural flood management and the ways that focusing on sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices can help in terms of water retention. So by focusing just on the agricultural side of the landscape, we're kind of missing an opportunity to bring in other funding and other businesses that have a real stake in those landscapes and ensuring that they continue to provide for them in the future. So it's really a model that's developed around collaboration and trying to sort of see where there's opportunities outside of the agricultural sector to, to pull funds and resources for a common outcome. Fantastic. Thank you. You briefly mentioned milk production there. We had Mark Brooker from First Milk on the podcast recently, and I understand they supply into Nestle as well. Could you tell us a bit more about that relationship? Yeah, for sure. So First Milk are one of our trusted and long-term suppliers here in the UK. So we've got a a relationship with them going back, I think it's about 20 years now, long long before I was with the company. They have, a, I guess, they're they're a cooperative with a, a network of farms around the country but we have two facilities in the north of England and in southwest Scotland that are producing coffee beverages in Dalston in Cumbria and confectionery in Girvan in Ayrshire, southwest Scotland. First Milk have a, a milk pool or, or sourcing region, which is, is around those particular farms. And I think this is around 100 dairy farms that are supplying it to us directly from farms to our businesses. We developed a, a sustainability program together with First Milk going back, to, I think it's about 10 years now long before we were talking about regenerative agriculture or any of these things. And it was really to ensure the supply of of milk going into those facilities was as sustainable and environmentally low impact as possible, all the while thinking about animal welfare as a key pillar and supporting farming incomes and livelihoods at the same time. So that started off in 2012 or around there. And recently, in the last sort of five years or so, that has morphed into more of a regenerative plan where we're trying to incentivize farmers within their supply chain to take up rotational grazing, diverse species and pastures, and really trying to push the regenerative agenda as, as much as we possibly can. And I know Mark, who, who's been on the podcast previously, has, has had a great deal of success in getting their farmer members to pursue or sign up to regenerative milk plans on, on each of their farms. I think they're at about 96 or 97 percent across their whole supply chain now this isn't just the nestle supply so i guess using maybe nestle's approach and our ambition as a catalyst they've then been able to really push this out across the rest of their supply chain which i think is one of the areas where a business of nestle size and scale can hopefully have more of an impact outside of our supply chain and influence what our suppliers are doing with some of their other farmers as well Yeah, absolutely. And it would be great to understand a little bit more of the specifics of how initiatives like the Landscape Enterprise Network and your work with First Milk are actually helping farmers and organisations in the supply chain to make that transition to regenerative agriculture. Yeah, sure. So we're on milk at the moment, so I'll stay there for the the time being. The way that we're doing this at the moment is uh, is through a holistic approach where we're offering agronomic advice to dairy farmers in addition to a a sustainability or regenerative premium for milk produced using particular practices. So we're really trying to focus as much as we possibly can in terms of resources and funding on building soil carbon and really trying to work on regenerative dairy practices 
as, as much as we possibly can. It's an approach which is based on a price premium. And again, not just focusing on the regenerative aspect, but looking at how we can encourage more female farmers, more young farmers to be involved in the farming businesses. Animal welfare, again, as I said earlier, is a key pillar. So we're trying to not make it just about carbon or just about biodiversity, but thinking about what are the enabling factors to allow businesses to continue farming in this way. And a lot of the time, of course, finance is, is really important, but training, education, and really trying to get the skills to remain in these communities is just as important as the funding in some cases. So trying to approach it from a lot of different angles, I think, is, is really, really important. Now, we're doing something a little bit different with the, the, the Lens program and with our arable supply chain in the east of England and, and in Yorkshire as well. We're wanting to incentivize the practices and really give the agency to the farmers in this case to choose the types of things that they want to do from a, a specific list of guidance that we offer. There's absolutely no obligation for farmers within our supply chain to engage in our programs where we're trying to keep the door open to farmers to try the farm in a particular way. But again, giving them the agency, I think, is really important, particularly as we're in this period where there's a great deal of uncertainty within UK farming, I think if we were asking farmers to sign up for long-term agreements at the door before they enter into a project like this or dip their toes into farming in a slightly different way, then we would probably see a lot more resistance. So we are quite open to the fact that we are likely to have farmers coming in for maybe one or two years, maybe dropping out, then coming back once they realise that you know, this scheme is, is there for good. But equally, we haven't really seen too many people drop out of the scheme up to this point. And with the East of England program, we've gone from 30 farms engaged in 2021, roughly 4,000 hectares of land impacted to around 120 farms now engaged in 2023, covering an area of around 20,000 hectares. And that's in East of England alone. And so when you think about how those numbers then increase, when you look at some of our other programs in Yorkshire, as well as on the continent now where we're operational in, in Hungary, Italy, and Poland, you know, the, the scale of this project and, and the speed at which it is scaling is pretty impressive at the moment. So we're really excited about where this is going and the, the opportunities that it can offer to farmers, not just in the UK, but across Europe and, and hopefully further afield in the future as well. Now, one of the really different things about Lens, which I think is one of the most exciting, and, and I think we might hear about this a little bit later, is the fact that we do offer the opportunity for farmers or groups of farmers to come to us with innovation measures or, or ideas, basically, which is not something that is possible with a fairly rigid, I guess, grant structure or one of the government schemes that, that you might be familiar with. So if a farmer or a group of farmers comes to us with an idea, it could be capital expenditure, it could be governance, it could be organization or management plans. We will look at every single one of those and assess them on their merits as to whether we will take them forward. Hopefully, then using those as a, an opportunity to learn and to offer other farmers those as, as more sort of standard practices in the future. So that's really appealing, I think, to farmers that we're giving them the agency to make their own decisions, but also to provide us with proposals that we might not have thought of. And I think that's really important. Absolutely. Thank you. And Patrick, it would be great to get an introduction from you to Lodge Farm and your regenerative ethos and what it's been like working with Nestle and being involved in a Lens project. Yeah, thanks, Rose. Yes, so we are a 545-hectare farm in Mid-Suffolk. We're on good arable cereal-growing Beckles Series boulder clay. So this is the proper breadbasket of Britain-type farm. Two-thirds of the farm is in winter wheat at any one time, so predominantly cereals. 
Um, we also grow spring barley, oilseed rape, linseed, spring beans and herbage ryegrass in our rotation. So I think obviously we're, we're a fairly typical farm for the area other than we grow ryegrass instead of sugar beet, which is what everyone else seems to grow. And for me, our whole farming ethos is around can we have a profitable, sustainable farm business, which is kind of at the front of the industry rather than lagging behind. But also at the same time, how do we reduce our impact on the natural environment? How do we have a farm that's absolutely full of farmland and wildlife? How do we have clean water leaving the farm? How do we preserve our historic landscape? And how do we make all that fit together over one farm and just be able to then show people actually what we do works and the the kind of the platform that we found ourselves on is it's not about telling people what to do it's about showing people we've got a system that works and we think something that fits policy and fits the public demand for the future and this has also kind of come together and culminated in us getting together with a large group of our neighboring farmers and they've all been saying to us you know we need to be working collaboratively can we is there something we can do together from a farming point of view it's about everyone looking at how we have businesses that are fit for the future and from a biodiversity point of view it's how do we take a few farms around in this area that are kind of real honeypot sites for a lot of our key species how do we then move the species around but also how do we upskill people and have better businesses at the same time so that's where we set about creating the high suffolk farm cluster and identified probably how much we would need to set it up and use lens as the platform for funding it and i'm delighted that nestle were able to fund it and that is the start of hopefully what is going to be a long and beneficial relationship for all of us you know all the farmers in the cluster are delighted that we've got to where we have done with it and it's, it's something that we'll just keep pushing on with you were recently featured on the BBC Wild Isles documentary, which is a, re- a really fantastic accolade. Tell us a little bit about how that came about. We actually were approached through the Nature Friendly Farming Network, which is an organisation that I sit on the one of the England Steering Committee of. And they were looking for farms that could demonstrate just arable production and arable farming. So there was a they already got penciled in a farmer called Neil Hesseltine at Malham who's got a fantastic herd of Belter Galloways and, and also a, a flock of sheep who's kind of revolutionised the way he farms. And they were looking for an arable case study as well. And they approached us and said, look, can we use you to do this? And this is a culmination of our whole farming journey over the last 15 years. So on this farm, cousin Brian and I, we came into the business kind of quite young and raw. And we've, we've just adapted and we've developed it as time has gone on. And we had a bit of a light bulb moment seven or eight years ago. Brian said, look, we're just we're moving far too much soil. This is something that absolutely needs to change. We need to be working much more with the natural environment than against it. And soil health is the kind of the, the, the bedrock to all this. So that's where our kind of our change came from, really. And that has then been about incorporating really well put together environmental stewardship schemes and actually a real passion for farmland wildlife and, and having a bit of belief in what it was we were trying to achieve. And we've created this this kind of this whole farming system that benefits people, benefits the farmland biodiversity and then we've been able to record it we've been a farm that just has the general public on the farm very regularly in in visits we do a lot of work with local school children we have quite high profile visits defra and members of parliament all those different people kind of the whole spectrum of people and that almost kind of this the wild hours then is the kind of culmination of all this work and and to be featured i think we had seven minutes on the program just showing harvest we showed merely ringing some barn owl chicks on one of our wildflower meadows one of our flowering margins was featured and a field of beans looking at ladybirds and ladybird larvae eating the black bean aphids also we also had one of our school visits so the school children looking at what we're doing it was just a just a really nice really good example of a, a kind of a typical day and a typical year for us and hopefully it showed what we're able to do 
and represents a lot of the really good stuff that's going on out there in the countryside because farmers generally kind of get quite a lot of bad press a lot of the time and whilst some of it is probably justified a lot of it isn't so i think we're able just to show some of that really good work and the benefits that you can find in the countryside every day how do you find knowledge sharing to be important in your transition around regenerative agriculture i think it's absolutely crucial it's been so beneficial to everything that we have developed as a business and actually us on this farm and a lot of the neighboring farmers have massively seen the benefits so when we came into the business when brian and i came into our family business in the late 2000s one of the very first things that actually that brian did was create his own discussion group and he'd, he'd been down to essex and, and seen a number of discussion groups where farmers just got together and said actually you know what we should be doing this we're not talking to the neighbors enough there's a lot of younger farmers in the area we should be talking to each other so he just started organizing meetings once a, once a month on a friday morning bacon rolls and coffee in the farm office few speakers and it went down really well all the neighbors all of a sudden got to know each other and started talking and they started sharing a lot more information and this led into the hdb monitor farm program uh, which brian then applied for and became a monitor farmer so we did three years of hdb knowledge exchange which was a brilliant program and it made the link between what historically have always been field trials with white canes and farmers thinking about ideas and wanting to put them into practice but not really being brave enough to it actually kind of gave a place for that that link between those two things so farmer-led knowledge exchange all of a sudden became something that everyone was was invested in and talking about when those three years of the monitor farm program were up they decided the hdb decided that the work had been so good and so beneficial that it needed to be carried on so as a farm we became the, the first strategic farm for cereals and oil seeds in the uk so we were the strategic farm for cereals and oil seeds for the east of england of which there's now um, two other ones in the country as well and that six-year program is just coming to an end this year there's been some brilliant studies going on on the farm all ideas by farmers what they want to see from the landscape what they want to learn what they want to just experiment with it was described by the htb as taking your business underwear off in public but for us it's been a huge learning experience it's been an opportunity to experiment it's challenged our and it's challenged everyone's attitude to risk and how much are you prepared to take risks if you believe what you're doing one of the very first trials on the farm or one of the things we're most proud of was looking at the uh, groundwater nitrate levels coming out of field drains behind overwinter cover crops, behind overwinter stubble and behind the plough. So Brian spent a lot of his winters climbing down in the bottom of ditches, filling little pots up with water running out of the field drains when they started running. But actually what we found was that the land that was in overwinter cover crops was reducing the amount of nitrate levels just off the chart ridiculously low so much so the uk limit for nitrates in groundwater is around 50 milligrams per liter and the land that was behind a plow or behind an overwinter stubble water was running with like 280 300 milligrams per liter of nitrates and it, the context is it costs the uk water industry something like 11 or 12 billion pounds a year to they can't even take nitrates out of drinking water. They have to blend it. They have to send it up and down the line and blend it with clean water until actually they bring that level right down. And what we found was that the land behind overwinter cover crops was coming in at between like three, four, six milligrams per litre. And that was just the overwinter cover crops sucking up all that residual nitrogen and retaining it in the plant rather than it disappearing down through the watercourse. This then has become policy. It's become something that's funded through lens. It's something that's funded in stewardship schemes. and that was 
been one of the massive benefits of this knowledge exchange program is taking these things and actually using them wider on wider farmland and to the benefit of farm businesses and the natural environment. Amazing, yeah. I'm really interested to know between your two organisations how the knowledge exchange has benefited you both. So what you've learned on farm from working with Nestle and, and in reverse as Nestle, what you've learned with working with Lodge Farm. For me, it's changed the way I think about what we're going to be doing in the future, especially. This has come at a really good time for us. At a time when we know we're losing our BPS, our direct subsidy, and the whole direction of travel is towards greater environmental awareness, more environmental benefits. It's made me think about what the supply chain actually wants from us as farmers and farm businesses, how the the crops that we grow in our fields can be grown to a spec that someone like Nestle actually wants and how we can grow crops to fit in with their requirements and the conversations that we're going to be having are about actually you know can we grow crops with a much reduced carbon footprint can we look at waste products can we look at using the the benefits from everything that we have on our farm the biodiversity the clean water all those different sorts of things can we be offering them as something that adds value to our own products and i think if we can get that right and we can we can be having that conversation then that's something that we'll be looking at scaling up through the whole cluster and how can we benefit all those farms in the cluster to have better businesses, more robust and more sustainable businesses, better trained and engaged farmers. And I think hopefully that's something that a company like Nestle would look to invest in us so we can add value and we can give them absolutely what it is that they're looking for. Yeah, and, and just to, to add to that as well, from a, from a Nestle perspective, I, I think, you know, we need to be clear that we don't say that we have all of the answers to this. This knowledge exchange is, is really sort of, you know, we are learning so much from working with the likes of, of Patrick and, and, and Brian every day. You know, we, we have a lot of discussions with, with farming groups without necessarily wanting to, to get in the way and impose ourselves. We're, we're really trying to be as humble and as collaborative with farmers about this as possible so that we can take the learnings and what's working now and some of the ideas that the likes of Patrick and Brian have been implementing on their farm for some time and seeing what we can do to to get those messages and and those practices working across the whole supply chain. And this is not just the east of England, this is, you know, all of Western Europe. It's, you know, across our whole supply chain. So we, as a business, we're we're really acting like a sponge at the moment and trying to to take as as much of the the good stuff, but equally learning from the, the challenges and the things that haven't worked and and really trying to work those back into our our programs. It really is a two-way street here, and we're really excited to be working on this. Patrick, just one more question specifically about the farm. What are you seeing in terms of specific improvements in the natural environment since you've been implementing regenerative practices? We started off down the route of looking at how we could incorporate an environmental stewardship scheme. So our very first stewardship scheme was a high-level stewardship scheme, HLS scheme, which ran from 2007 to 2018. And I think we were very much in the mindset of, can we farm the farm as efficiently as we possibly can? So we straighten up all the headlands. We, we take the funny areas out of production that we, we know don't generate you know, the income that they should do. And can we put, turn them over to uh, the stewardship area? So effectively, we were just saying, right, this is the land we farm and this is the land that is for intensive wildlife production. They run alongside each other. As time has gone on, we've realised that actually to deliver real benefits and to see benefits for both the farming side and the farm wildlife side, that this needs to be a much more holistic approach. So now we're looking at a whole farm ecosystem. So every field that is growing crops, actually, we're looking at our soil as the base of our farmland ecosystem completely. And can we incorporate measures in our farming system 
that benefit farmland wildlife and benefit environmental stewardship options that actually benefit our farms. So another HDB trial we've got going on is looking at if we put flowering margins around the outside of arable fields, how do our beneficial predatory insects numbers increase and how do they affect our insect crop pests? And that's been a fascinating study in, in actually looking at if you provide habitat, if you build it, they will come. If you create the habitat, you will provide a home for all these beneficial predatory insects that will be eating slugs, hobflies that are eating aphids, all these relationships that go on. You know, if if you create that habitat, there are benefits there. So I think that is how we've actually really learned to incorporate all this together. So now for me, it's about recording all that farm wildlife, whether it's in field, outfield, in woodland, whether it's in flowering margins or other environmental stewardship options. We always hoped we would have barn owls return. Now I know that we will have barn owls every single year. This year we've got three pairs breeding. Last year we actually had five pairs breeding. It's just been fascinating to see how the landscape has changed. And it's just given me a real confidence in what we do because I can see by the way the farmland wildlife has responded. You know, this we, we now have turtle doves breeding every single year in at least three or four areas of the farm. I know that there's five ponds on the farm that have great crested newts breeding in them every single year. And I can go to those ponds every year and see at least 20 different species of dragonfly um our flowering margins have 23 species of butterfly we've recorded um and then during lockdown i got in, interested in recording moths as well which is a, a slightly strange hobby but it's provided so much more data we've now recorded like 350 species of moth on the farm so i now know that this farm is buzzing full of wildlife all, all the time and it's just about providing that habitat and, and keeping everything working together. The project we're now looking at this year is actually on bees. And every time my bee recorder goes out, he finds a rare species for Suffolk. He's found species that the one species that has been recorded in Suffolk five times since 1990. He's found another species called Melita trachinta, which is a red Bartsia bee, which has never been recorded in East Suffolk before and has only ever been found on Breckland. And, and here it is just on farmland. So by putting all these measures in place, the wildlife really does respond and it gives us a farm and a natural environment that is so much richer for it. Really amazing. Um, Matt, are you uh, Nestle able to draw a line between your sustainability targets and the sorts of natural benefits that, that Patrick's been talking about with the, the farms that are supplying you? From the perspective of regenerative agriculture and the regenerative transition, I think too much of the focus here has been put on carbon. And I think we need to try and find a more holistic way to think about the benefits that, that these types of practices are having for nature as well. And we need to use the example that Patrick has shared with us here as a way of really trying to get the message across that you know nature is fundamentally the thing that is allowing us to continue to produce crops and, and for us to continue to pr produce the ingredients and, the, and the, for the products that we make and, and, uh, and sell on a daily basis. The nature agenda really does need to be woven more into the projects that we have, the metrics that we have, but equally the brand proposition I think is going to be really important here. Consumers are much more interested to understand that the products that, that we are making have had a positive impact on nature rather than the carbon footprints of these products. And I think we're probably going to see more of this in the future where brands are and businesses are more eager to, to talk about their nature-related credentials, not just because they, they need to disclose, which they, they will soon, but because consumers and the wider public are increasingly aware of the impact that agriculture is having on nature. And they need to be made aware more about the positive impact that the likes of Patrick and, and Brian and their way of farming can, can have on nature and, and conserving 
not just endangered species, but as Patrick has elaborated on earlier, all of the other beneficials that can have a, a really positive impact on reducing our reliance on synthetic herbicides and chemicals. So yeah, I, I think all of this needs to be wrapped up into a, a holistic view, which I think is only going to benefit our business in terms of the proposition for the brands. But there is going to be a big push from consumers to, to learn more about uh, this way of farming. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be fascinating over the coming years to watch how both at the large multinational end of the spectrum and at farm level, these complex issues like biodiversity are kind of quantified and, and measured and checked to show continuous improvement and then how all of that complexity is explained to the consumer. Yeah, indeed. And, and I think just to follow up on that, you know, and, and one of the things that we've tried to do and, and the reason that we've been doing this for quite a few years now, we, we haven't waited for the perfect metrics before going out and, and having an impact. And that's why you know, Lens is now a, a few years in. You know, we've been doing this since, since 2012. So, you know, the, the important thing that we've seen is that we just have to go and start. The metrics will follow the protocols around how you baseline and, and you, you measure impact is obviously coming. And in some cases, it's already here. But we, we shouldn't let that stop us from starting to have a positive impact on farms. That's really what I'm trying to emphasize internally as well. If we wait for perfect solutions, it's going to mean that we're, we're years down the road. We're no close to meeting our targets, but equally, you know, the, the impact on the, on the landscape is, is not being addressed. So, yeah, we really need to get started. I think the farmers need to be thinking that as well. I think if people are sitting there waiting to be incentivized or waiting to be offered money to change a system, then you're already being left behind a little bit. For me, the benefits of everything we do are there to see. It's not just farmland wildlife. The system that we have and we run, we know is better for our soil health. We have been able to maintain our average yield on all the crops we're growing, but we've absolutely slashed our cost of production because we're using less fertilizer, we're using less chemicals. And I know that we now have a farm that has so much more wildlife in it. We have people who are happier coming to work because they just absolutely love a farm where you can drive to work and a barn owl flies past you as you as you drive in or you have to stop the tractor because there's a hare running across the drive in front of you. But also, I know that if we farm this way and we get it right, it is reducing our carbon footprint without us even trying. And we know from the conversations with our bank relationship manager, our accountants, that we're spending less money as well so it's better for business and this isn't a, a one size fits all when it comes to carbon or wildlife or business or whatever it is it's actually just about a whole farm system in the office and outside of it that is better for everyone so i'd be interested to hear in closing then from both of you what your aspirations are for the future and if there's any advice that you've got for other businesses aiming to become more regenerative yeah i'm, I'm happy to start with that and, and i think just a, a key sort of point here, and you know, there's a lot of buzz around regenerative agriculture, and and there's a lot of businesses that are that are looking to transition their supply chain to this way of, of working. And like I said at the start, this is not a one size fits all approach, particularly when you've got a supply chain as as large as ours. You know, we need to be open to to making some mistakes along the way. We're we're going to do that, but equally, you know, the material risks to our supply chains, no matter how big your business is or how wide your sourcing is. You know, we're seeing very severe issues and then potential risks uh, right across the, the world when it comes to uh, agricultural production, not just in South Asia and, and Sub-Saharan Africa and, uh, and, and other regions. We, we had a severe drought, very severe drought actually uh, in, in the east of England last year, which is the, the, the breadbasket of the, of, the, of the country. So we need to try and 
focus on resilience here as, as the key driver for, for these types of investments. You know, Neste is a business that's been around for over 155 years. We need to be focusing on the next 155 years. And similarly to, to the Barkers, and you know, they've been on their farm for, for decades and the decisions that they make now about how they farm are likely to be instrumental in how they continue to farm for the next multiple decades, the next 155 years. So I think from, from my side, the message is we're not doing this alone. And you know, other businesses or, or individuals that are that are looking to make this transition need to try and find ways to pool their resources, uh, look at opportunities. Who else is present in the landscape? You know, what other businesses are there? The lens approach is, is something that I would highly recommend. That really tries to bring organisations from a wide range of sectors around the table to focus on the, the, the challenge and, and the opportunities that might be present in those particular regions. So, my, my recommendation at this point would be to, to take a look at the lens model. If this is something that might fit in with their approach, follow it up and see if that's something that you'd be interested in. And Patrick? Yeah, I think for me, this falls into three categories. For me, it's innovation, education and collaboration. And it means for us as farmers, we just have to keep doing what we're doing with our most serious business heads screwed on all the time. So can we be as productive as we possibly can be? in every aspect of our business. And in the old days, production meant how much wheat was in the barn. Now production means, are we using the best land for the best arable outcome? Are we using the best land for wildlife benefit to actually benefit our farmland wildlife? And and can we create a yield of wildlife in that? Are we looking at most appropriate land use for everything we do? And actually, can we make it generate an income as well? We went to Nestle looking for funding and actually what we've come out with is funding, advice, ideas, friends, everything is pulled together in far greater than just someone writing a cheque to fund a project for me, which is actually really exciting. And it's given me a, a whole different focus on how we look to the future and how we look to create a sustainable business. But that means we have to keep farming the way that we think we should do in a sustainable and environmentally sensitive way as possible. That's innovation and pretty much collaboration as well. It's now then it's with the collaboration with the cluster. It's working with our neighbours and the things that we're doing, if they're doing it and the other neighbours are doing it, can we all add value to what we're doing? Can we all have a landscape richer in wildlife that we can then grow the same crops, market them in the right places? And something that we can all benefit as sustainable farming businesses together, because actually we need a sustainable farm business landscape, because then we have just a, a, an area, a community that benefits from it all. And also education. For me, it's about school visits. It's about inspiring the next generation to show them that actually it's not about who's got the biggest tractor, who can drive as fast as they possibly can on the road, who can burn the most fuel. It's actually who can be the best businessman, who can be the farmer that produces the food we need or the crops for industry, but also have as little impact on the natural environment as well. And getting schools out on farms, linking up with organisations like LEAF as well, fantastic resources. LEAF, the countryside classroom, you know, can we all be showing the next generation, but also the current generation as well? I think everyone has an obligation. If the TV cameras turn up or are looking for somewhere to go or a radio interview or podcasts or newspaper articles, as farmers, if we believe we're doing the right thing, we need to show that's what we're doing because it's about winning hearts and minds from other farmers from supply chains, from the wider general public and our own industry as well. It's about showing that we have a system that works, that is beneficial and is long-term sustainable. So innovation, collaboration and education. And I think we set ourselves up with a chance to succeed in the future. And how can people stay up to date with um, your regenerative journeys? 
So from a global perspective, the regenerative agriculture ambition and, and targets that we've set are absolutely central to our net zero roadmap approach. And, and the progress that we're making towards these targets is reported annually in our Creating Shared Value report, which is basically the sustainability annual report for the global business. So certainly can keep track there. We're trying to put a bit more information on the Nestle websites as well in, in each of the regions with particular case studies so that we can really show what's going on in each of the markets as well. We're also trying to get a lot more out and about doing presentations and really advocating for this approach globally as well. So it's, it's pretty difficult to miss us at the moment in, in this space, but uh, happy to take any emails or if there's any particular suggestions or questions, please follow up. So everything that we've done from a knowledge exchange point of view and a strategic farm point of view is available on the HDB website. So put HDB Strategic Farm East into any search engine and all that information is there for everyone to look at. For me, it's not about following us or looking at what we do. It's about people having the confidence to go out there and try things. Think, how can we reduce our inputs? How can we spend less money on the crops we're growing how can we increase our farmland biodiversity how can we increase our soil health and trying things using companies like nestle who want to help with that change and help with that process and i think it's just about people going out there and being a bit braver looking at what the policy is asking for so defra's health and harmony which then became the agriculture bill and the environment bill, how it all fits together with SFI, with cultural stewardship, is use those schemes to make your businesses stronger. You know, taking land out of production isn't necessarily a weakness. It actually can be a, a really sensible business decision at times. For me, it's about people going out there and, and just learning. Go to Groundswell, go to the Oxford Real Farming Conference, pick information from everywhere, and hopefully people will look at what we do and suddenly think, actually, you know what, we've done that and it worked. And realise that from one year to the next, their levels of farmland wildlife have increased because they've been working hard at it. So for me, it's about people bettering themselves. And that's how everyone can benefit from this, because we all become better farmers and better land managers as a result. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you both so much for joining me today. That's a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on the Region Agri podcast. To learn more about what we've talked about in this episode, please find the relevant links in the show notes. If you would like to know more about how the Region Agri Initiative can help you on your regenerative journey from advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data and regenerative certification through to carbon verification, please visit regenagri.org. You can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our digital hub for free insight and advice. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at regenagri underscore org or search for Region Agri on LinkedIn. Thank you.